Uh, We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3 this evening, uh, the book of Colossians chapter 3, the opening verses of that chapter. This is the word of the Lord, indeed given to us for our instruction, for our upbuilding, for our guide for faith and life and worship and testimony. This is the word of the Lord given by the inspiration of the Spirit. Colossians 3 at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, for Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray, asking him to be with us as we open the word. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you that you are our teacher. Thank you, Father, that you come to instruct, uh, you come to show us the way, and in that regard, Lord, to illumine our hearts and minds, to turn the light on, as we would say. We pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hands. Lord, we are here as your servants to receive all that you have for us. Uh, Guide us now in your word, and we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I know that if you were to go downtown in Houston to the Art Museum, or perhaps to the National Gallery in Philadelphia or Washington, D.C., I'm sure you would see, you know, all kinds of uh, beautiful paintings, right? All kinds of beautiful paintings. Perhaps some originals, perhaps, I don't know, but certainly many, many replicas. It's not only the painting that would catch your eye, but also the frame, right? It's place setting. Perhaps the matting, those of us that are in perhaps, uh, you know, uh, artistic areas of life and have artistic interests, we know something about the matting and what goes into placing a picture or placing that painting inside the frame. Well, the New Testament letters are a frame around your life. And the frame that we typically, typically of ourselves, would reach for to be thinking about, well, what's, what's around my life? What concerns my life? What sets my life here to be seen before God and before others? That frame, typically of ourselves, is puny. <laughs> It is, it is man-centered. Uh, it is uh, a frame that we would, we would reach for. But God, in a passage like this, just to let the metaphor go here with us for a minute, the picture of our minds, the, the ways we should be thinking about the Apostle Paul and his letters, the frame that goes around our lives is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are placed in him. That, he is the frame, and especially, yes, his life, his death, and whenever, the, whenever his death comes up in Scripture, it always assumes resurrection, because he's the living God, buried in the tomb, there for the three days, and then raised in glory, and Paul has that here for us in this passage. If then you've been raised with Christ, there it is, that's the frame, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Now, why begin with reaching for the New Testament frame, the frame of Jesus, and and, and putting the portrait of your life, the picture 
that, that, uh, that image of your life in that frame, Christ is Lord, Christ is the risen Lord. Uh, why do we start here? Because we're in this series of sermons where we're learning about the doctrine of adoption. That's that spiritual granting of God's gracious favor to take us out of this world, bring us into, into his family. That is the gift of faith. That is the gift of grace. And what's accented in the Bible, and here it is now, watch this. What's accented in the Bible on this is that we not only have a legal standing of justification along with adoption, there's not only the image in the Bible about the courtroom, the legal declaration, not guilty, vindicated, altogether righteous because of Christ. Not only do we have this legal image, including adoption, but adoption especially describes the image of family. That's why in several places, two or three anyway, where it says we cry out, Abba, Father, it's in connection with adoption. It's a family connection. And in these lessons, last week and in tonight, the lesson for tonight, it's the resurrection that is once again key about that security that we have. The security of being in Christ. The security that he loves us. We are, we are, we are brought to his, we're brought in closeness to him. And indeed, he watches over us as his children. I have in my notes here, you miss Christ's resurrection and you miss sonship. You miss Christ's resurrection and you miss being a daughter of the king, being in the family. And that's why Paul is linking in the matter here of uh, being a Christian, walking with the Lord with the resurrection. Once again, I want to look at a point here tonight, this history-changing epoch, this history-changing event of Christ's resurrection, and then we'll look briefly at a few competitors, not competitors about the resurrection, but competitors that would compete, would compete with us living out this resurrection life, things that would compete with us living out this resurrection life. Again, we have the words in terms of this history-changing epoch that Christ has been raised. Look at these words again in the passage, Colossians chapter 3, if then you've been raised with Christ... Again, we have the words, he is, it's understood here, he is seated at the right hand of God. And then once again, when Christ, who is your life, appears, that's to say, he's seated at the right hand of God, and he will return. He's the God of all glory. He's the one who's the son of, uh, son of man and the very God of glory who will once again appear and come for his church, his bride, his second coming. Well, we've been stressing now, these facts about the historical, history-changing epoch or era of which we are a part. This is the era of resurrection. This is the, the scene now where Christ has come. He was born. He lived. He died. He was buried. Indeed, he was raised. And we've stressed that the promise that the Jews first received, the Old Testament saints first received, this promise that, that in the last days, in the last days where there would be judgment to be brought, where there indeed would be, be judgment with, including death and condemnation that would be brought, 
These last days have now been fulfilled. Christ is the one who received the condemnation. The last days have occurred. Christ is the one that's been judged for our sin. The last days have happened. Matters of death itself. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But the wages of sin is death. These have now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is the already of the wonderful promise that God has brought salvation. I like what it says in John chapter 6. Jesus teaching here, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has everlasting life. That means right now, what would be for eternity has now been brought into this era of the present day world. What was reserved later on down through history, as we say, at the end of the day, there'd be judgment and condemnation and the accounting of the sin. The point is, Jesus himself has taken on the sin. God has judged sin in Christ. God has judged sin in Christ by him being buried and being there for three days and being buried. The point is, Jesus is now saying, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has everlasting life. That eternal life and those eternal blessings are now yours if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. These promises of the, of the already are yours. The already God has, has, has inaugurated the onset of this eternal life. Now, this is not new for the Old Testament. This was the mother promise in the Old Testament. God is the living God. He's the God of the resurrection. He's been that way from, from eternity past to eternity future, as we say. He promises in the Old Testament that this eternal life is coming. Here's an example. Back with Adam and Eve in the Old Testament, when they fell into sin, they, they were then brought into ruin and death. They died. That's what, that, was the, that, was the, that was the probation that, they were to, that, that, that would come their way. Surely, if you eat of this tree, you will die. And they died. Fallen in sin. Spiritually dead in their sin. But God came to them in his grace. God came to them in his grace. And he made that promise of his coming, saving work. And he gave them Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's speaking there to the serpent. But it's a promise that this indeed, God would crush the serpent and he would bring life. To Adam and Eve. That's this promise of this coming new life that they would see. That's, that's resurrection life. It's the Lord Jesus who would come and be the serpent crusher. <laughs> and so even in the Old Testament, the promise of life is already being spoken of early, early on in the chapters there with Genesis. And God will repeat such promises even to Israel as a nation. We read that in the book of Exodus, out of Israel, sorry, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Again, it's, it's, this, it's this principle of the Easter event. There'd be new life given to Israel. What is Israel doing? In Egypt, she's under bondage. She's under oppression. Um, she has ta a taskmaster of Pharaoh. And there for 400 years, it's all you know, emblematic or it's, it all represents her bondage to sin, and yet he comes as the deliverer and opens that way to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. 
and it's resurrection life. They are given new life to be delivered from bondage and oppressive slavery. This is, again, another emblem representing God being the God who breaks, who breaks the power of sin, who overcomes oppressors and oppression, who takes those who are weak of themselves, that's Israel, and brings them across on dry land. And that's that resurrection life that he continues to school his people in. Had the same thing when Israel's about ready to cross, cross the, the Jordan River into the promised land. It's a repeat. This time, the sin that you see in Israel's life, it's a new generation getting ready to cross into the promised land, but the sin is all representative that they've been wandering in the wilderness. And that's very much related. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. But God says, I will lead you, and you're to go to across this river. Once again, he separates the waters, and they cross on dry ground, even as the Ark, goes, the Ark of the Covenant goes ahead of them. It's resurrection life once again. They're brought into the promised land. These are all lessons and teaching us, being reminded that our God is the living God and the God of resurrection. Now, is that your framework? <laughs> is that the frame around your, your image of your life? What circumstances are you in tonight? What cares and concerns do you carry on, upon your heart and in your life this very day? What's ahead of you this week? What have you been living through the last 10 days? You see, this frame around your life is Christ who is Lord. We're told here, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Christ is Lord. He indeed is the sovereign one. He has conquered death. He has broken the chains of the bondage of our sin. The power of that sin has been silenced. The authority of Christ being over all the nations. So it matters not. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone that you see at the office or on the job. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's even a casual acquaintance. You can say in your heart, Christ your Lord, for he is. The nations are his. That office, those, those other men and women around whom you work, they're all his. He's sovereign over them. The family member or family members that you've been thinking about here with the holidays here at our doorstep, they all are before his face. Christ is Lord. And that's why we're, we're reminded once again, if you've, been, if you've been raised with Christ, that means if you are in spiritual union with him, by faith, then you know that Christ being seated at the right hand of God is sovereign. Is that frame around the image of your life? This is resurrection living. We're living in Christ who is Lord. We're living in his lordship. We're living in his continual presence with us. We're living knowing that he's the God who controls, um, as we know from Scripture, the birds of the air. He sends rain on one city and withholds rain from another city. He sets men to be born in places and in times and seasons as he is so appointed. He's the sovereign one. He's the one of royalty. 
Moses, remember when Moses was so afraid to go and be the spokesperson for his people, God came to him and in that vision said to him, Moses, do you not know that who is the one who has made the mouth, who has made the ear, who has made the tongue? Remember that? Because Moses didn't want to be the speaker. <laughs> He's the one to lead and to guide and to accompany. And this is proved out in Jesus' own life. As I've said before, the Father did not simply shout from heaven, this is the way of salvation. No. God the Son entered into human flesh. The one who is Lord himself adorned human flesh. He is now the word in flesh. That's to say, our God accompanies his word. And it's all pictured for us in the incarnation. God doesn't simply at a distance say, go this way. This is the righteous way. He comes to us and he accompanies his promises. He accompanies his commands. And that is brought home to us in the incarnation. Is this the frame that is around our lives? Paul will tell us here, look at verse 3. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's that, that's that language of union now. Amen? That's that language of union. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. He is your security. And that's shorthand language. When we speak of security, that is shorthand language speaking about the sovereign purposes, the sovereign rule, the sovereign care. Because Christ is Lord. We have been raised with Christ. Our trust is in him. Now briefly, some competitors. Things that will compete with resurrection living. Things that will compete with it. I'm going to have us go back in just a moment and look at a few verses in the bigger section of Colossians. I don't want to just, uh, I don't want to mislead you folks. I don't want to mislead you in that sense that these are not just Mark's ideas. I want to come back to Colossians and bring out of Colossians some areas of competition to this resurrection living that this original church was faced with. Thus, we too. We can, we can identify with the people of God back here in this New Testament period. But to start in about these competitors, things that would maybe threaten, things that would hem us in, things that would ensnare us so that we're tempted to follow the allurements and, and, and set aside resurrection living, set aside being in Christ, if, you know, if that would be possible. But you know what I mean, experientially, to live the life on our own. That's what I'm getting at. What are some things that we might think of here? Is it doubt? Are you from time to time faced with doubt? That which would compete with resurrection living. You doubt God's help and God's presence. And here's a teaching point about that. A little creed, a creedal statement about it. Making these up. When in doubt, here's, here's what we might, we might live by. Here's what we might live by if we're faced with doubt. When in doubt, just check out. <laughs> we check out with a slow drift, slow at first little habits, slow little gradual habits that would lead us away from walking with the Lord in the word and living out that resurrection life that we have by his grace. Maybe it's fate, fate. And that's piped into us a lot, whether it be internet or whether it's radio, whatever it might be, or counselors that are around us in life, people. Those that are on the radio talk shows, fate. 
that's all around us, and it comes this way, we'll hear this sort of teaching lesson, what will be, will be. We sometimes will say, well, it wasn't meant. Those are, those are all code words. Those are all, that's all everyday conversation about fate. And again, here's the teaching creed point here. We overcome life's scars. We overcome life's scars by following the stars. We say that the planets must be lining up. We say that Father Time is at work. We say that Mother Earth is looking out for us. Fate. How about comparing ourselves with others? Living a life of comparison. That's Mark Sumter. Hmm. Living a life of comparison. We justify our lives by comparing ourselves to others. We'll say things like this. Not like he, that's my take, we'll be saying to one another, we say to God, I'm not like he is. That's my take. And I'm not like she is. So, Lord, I get a break. I get a break. And so we do. We justify ourselves by comparing ourselves with others. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like them. I've not gone that far. And we live life by comparison. Here's one more. How about a friend and a companion named Ernest Goodworks? Ernest Goodworks, right? Ernest Goodworks. We live and we're consumed by doing self-evaluations of how earnest we are in earning merit before God. Ernest Goodworks, that's his name. Boy, have I known that friend. That friend's been around my life a lot. Ernest Goodworks. And here's the creed. We try harder, we grin longer, we dig deeper, and that's me, the law keeper. Ernest Goodworks. Now, in the book of Colossians, these very competitors come up. I've tried to put them just in everyday conversation for us. But let's quickly do just a quick sweep, and then we'll be done. Go back to Colossians 1.23. Go back to Colossians 1.23. These are the competitors now. Are we living the resurrected life that we're called to in Christ? These, these brothers and sisters in Colossae, there in Asia Minor, were faced with such competitors. Colossians 1.23. You see, sons and daughters in Christ are to remain steadfast. What does it say in 1.23? Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. They were vulnerable to listen in to competing voices. Maybe voices like Ernest Goodworks. You do what you can do. If you want to stay in God's favor, if you want to earn His grace and His smile, and so Paul's reminding them, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, the good news. Now look at Colossians 2, verse 8. Again, sons and daughters in Christ are vulnerable to embrace worldly philosophy. Look at Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty conceit, according to human tradition. These believers were faced with teachers of all kinds all around them. 
the matter of human traditions, the matter of human explanations, the matter of human experience being the card that we always go back to to play and we rely upon experience. That's, that's a way of relying upon philosophy. That's a way of relying upon your tradition, your thoughtfulness, your experience, your life experience. And again, even with philosophy in, in the more academic sense, many philosophers today will be teaching us, whether they be the professional academics or the amateur philosophers, that much of life, they would say, life is a life lived under the stars and under the planets lining up and under the horoscope. We are to live life by, by fate and chance and happenstance. We're to be aware. That's not resurrection living. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord, you see. Go down to Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Colossians 2, 20 and 21. And this is in a section now where rather than knowing that we've died with Christ, that Christ himself has become the circumcision for our sins. That's to say, he was cut off. He was the circumcision at, the, at Calvary's cross. In his body, there upon the tree, his body was broken because, he was, because sin was judged in his body there at his death. In this section, Paul then addresses this matter of trying to find your own life, watch this now, trying to find your own life and hope and purpose by an orientation, being oriented to self-abasement. Deny, your thing, deny things from yourself. Put away things from yourself. This self-abasement that indeed you might have sufficient affliction, that's what it is, sufficient self-abasement that you might then be found worthy. Listen to what he says in Colossians 2, 20 and 21. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is a section talking about Christ has died for our sins. He himself was afflicted by being the one to be judged for our sins. Are you now living trying to pursue self-abasement, self-discipline, self-infliction of some kind? By putting away such things, as he says here, do not, uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's what's going on in that passage. He's saying, no, 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 you've died with Christ. Christ is the one who received judgment. Refuse th this pursuit of this self-infliction, this self-discipline. It's all with the view that, Lord, I'm getting closer to you. Lord, you see what I'm, I'm denying myself? I'm getting closer. I'm getting closer to you, Lord. Hmm. Paul says, put such things away because your life has died in Christ. And then one last one, Colossians 2.18. 2.18. So you'll skip back up a couple of verses. Again, sons and daughters in Christ are to be vigilant about the allurement of the worship of angels. Interestingly, he has that in this Bible book here. Colossians 2.18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. We've been talking about that, about that self-abasement. Asceticism, asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions. Evidently, in Colossae, there were many Jewish people because in Old Testament history, the Jews, they, they would elevate the place of angels. Why? 
because they knew the storyline of Old Testament stories where the angel of the Lord would appear. And so it was natural, in that sense, it was natural for the Jewish mind to elevate the place of angels. That's why the book of Hebrews will even address that, that Jesus is not an angel. <laughs> He's the glorious God himself. But the point is, here in Colossae, they were tempted with these kinds of visions, this kind of superstitious reliance. And so he says, let no one disqualify you. Refuse the teaching about elevating the angels or angelic beings to some form of worship, which somehow, will, will you believe, will be a means through which you will gain a hearing with God or to be closer to him. Once again, these are man-made traditions that the gospel cuts right across because our God has come in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, the very second person of the Trinity, God of God, made Lord in the flesh. And that's why he says here in our own chapter now, chapter 3, verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. That is, seek Christ. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether it be doubt or fate, whether it be superstition, whether it be matters of temptations, of allurements, of your life of itself and in and of itself, seeking to merit eternal life before our God, we always need to come back to Christ, who's Lord. He's Lord by his resurrection. He's Lord by our God vindicating his son because of what he has done. I ran across a quote. Maybe you saw it as well on social media a few days ago. I ran across this quote from Martin Luther, the old German reformer um, in, the, in the 1500s. I like this. This fits so well with sonship. It fits so well with this matter of having that frame around the image of our lives, who we are, that frame of resurrection. Christ has been raised. The fact of his bodily resurrection, it fits so well with sonship. Luther wrote these words. When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look to Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. You see, typically we have a very puny frame. <laughs> Who we are, our self-efforts, reliance upon ourselves and our circumstances. Luther is reminding us, you look to Christ. Your faith is in Christ. His glories, his beauties, his power, his name, his exaltation. That's why Luther says, if I look at myself, I don't know how I can be saved. But when I look at Jesus... I don't see how I can be lost. We rest in him, and that's why Paul says, you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. And we live as sons and daughters. Let's pray. Oh God, how we thank you that you are the Lord to teach us and to guide us. And so we pray that you would bring this application home to our hearts and minds. Oh, Father, in this new week ahead of us, may we serve the Lord in the Lord's power, 
especially in these promises of the gospel, that Christ has come, that Christ has been raised. Lord, this glorious power that you've displayed by virtue of his bodily resurrection, Lord, what hope that is for us. May we be grounded and may we continue to grow, grounded and to grow in Christ who is our Lord. Continue to minister to us now. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.